conventional wisdom doesn't work. And you should train your mind to just question everything. And when you look around you and you think about conventional, I mean, you pick one, you know, just pick one. And then you ask yourself, okay, is that working? Conventional education, go to college, get the degree, come out of college with that six-figure job and drive the nice company car. Is that working? Not anymore. Conventional medicine, conventional health, conventional wealth, you know, Work in this cubicle for 40 years, invest your money in a 401k, and someday you might be rich enough to retire and live the good life. How's that work? That's horrible. You know, so, so just like you go, you go down the list and you ask the question about conventional in a lot of those different categories, and you ask yourself the question, does that work? Is that, how's that working for people? And you quickly realize that conventional wisdom usually isn't the best way to approach things. Welcome to Elevate, the masterclass where we dissect the elements of exceptional achievement and lifestyle design with a focus on personal growth and real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Tyler Chesser. Elevate Nation, welcome back. This is Tyler Chesser. I'm so thankful to have you here. And I am blessed and grateful to be sitting with Dave Zook today. Oh, baby, we covered tremendous ground in today's episode. And you are going to learn what it means to explode conventional wisdom, what upside there is in expanding your future through questioning conventional wisdom. Ultimately, you can be conventional or you can be wealthy. Pick one. Today is going to give you the opportunity to expand your wealth, not only from a financial perspective, from a tax mitigation perspective, but also to expand your lifetime fulfillment through questioning conventional wisdom across the board in your life. I'm telling you, today's episode is life-changing. And oh, baby, buckle up. Elevate Podcast is all about mindset, mind expansion, and personal development for high-performing real estate investors. I'm your host, Tyler Chesser, and I'm a professional real estate investor and entrepreneur. It is my job to decode the stories, habits, and multifaceted expertise of world-class investors and other experts to help you elevate your performance and lifestyle. Are you ready to take it to another level? It is time. Let's raise the bar today. And before we dive into this episode, I want to invite you to pay the fee. The fee is to pay it forward and share this episode with a friend. Just grab the link wherever you're watching or listening to this podcast. All you have to do is grab that link, shoot it forward via text message, email, social media, post it. Just mention the podcast to someone else. We just really ask you to do that from the bottom of my heart. I really appreciate any introductions. I know that referrals, we don't take them lightly. And we want to add value to other people in your community. And the only way that we can continue to grow and add value is if you help us share this episode. If you've done that in the past, we just want to thank you. I'm here to thank you today. We ask you to do that once again today. That's the fee for listening. Otherwise, it's 100% for free. And then also, by the way, if it's your first time listening to Elevate, welcome. We're here to pour massive value into you. And again, you know, these episodes, we put in so much work, time, attention, because we want to show you massive respect and kudos to you for giving us your time and attention today. And without further ado, I want to introduce you to the man, the myth, the legend, Dave Zook, who is the founder and CEO at The Real Asset Investors and the owner at Horizon Structures. Dave Zook is a tremendously successful real estate investor and alternative investment syndicator operator who's provided tremendous value for thousands of investors. He's raised over $500 million for alternative investments. He has transformed his own tax 
liability for a lifestyle in such a big way. And he's helped over a hundred million dollars worth of other tax liabilities be erased for other investors. And it's not just about letting the tax tail wag the dog, but it is about creating a lifestyle and it's about expanding through the clues of what Dave has shared with us today. So without further ado, please enjoy this fantastic, this insightful, this inspiring conversation with Dave Zook. Welcome to Elevate, Dave Zook. How are you, my friend? I'm good, Tyler. Thanks for having me on your show. Absolutely, man. I'm excited about this. And uh, it was fun to just kind of catch up here before we got going. And we got a Friday morning, we got Friday energy. And uh, I was looking back on my week and I'm like, uh oh, I still have about 27 things I need to accomplish. It sounds like the same for you. And that's a typical week, right? But uh, while we dive into this conversation, Dave, why don't you take a moment to briefly introduce yourself to Elevate Nation, talk a little bit about your upbringing, a bit about your backstory, if you don't mind. Yeah, so fortunately, I was born and raised in a very entrepreneurial, business-friendly family, and I grew up in the family business, which was modular buildings. We were building uh, modular buildings, still are. My dad bought the business the year I was born and uh, sort of grew up in that space. And uh, as I was you know, getting into my teens and early 20s, I was kind of looking around, seeing what what else is out there. And I started investing and building some businesses, largely due to the fact that I saw my dad investing his extra money is very successful. And I seen him invest in his money in farms and land and some single family homes. And I saw him self-manage those single family homes. And I quickly lost appetite and for anything that had to do with investing in real estate. And I just decided that wasn't going to be me. So I started building businesses. And long story short, some of those businesses started doing really well. Got myself in a position where I was paying a half million dollars a year in tax. And um, I was having a lot of fun at the time building these businesses and, and running the businesses. But when I had to give half my money back to the government or almost half, it just wasn't so much fun anymore. So that's what drove me into uh, investing first in multifamily apartments and you know getting familiar with words like cost segregation studies and 100% bonus depreciation section 179 at the time and and uh, you know quickly took my tax liability from a half million dollars a year to zero the following year so really studied and got my mind around you know how that worked and uh, eventually got to the point where I realized there was a lot of people sort of in that camp and I started teaching it so I, I sort of went down that path of investing in multifamily apartments, and that led me down to the path of bringing some friends and family with me, and then you know, kind of business associates and all that. And we started doing some deals together. And next thing you know, I'm I'm a syndicator. Really didn't plan it that way. Yeah, man. I, I know there's so many of the listeners can resonate with what you're talking about, and and myself included. I remember those first few sort of big tax checks I had to write to the government. I was like, man, that does not feel good. <laughs> and it pushes you into action. It's like it causes you to start asking questions and sort of the conventional wisdom as well. You know, I, I remember hearing this, and I'm sure you've heard this yourself. It's the CPA that says, well, if you're paying more taxes, that that's a good thing. That means you're making more money. And I love your tagline. It says you can be conventional or you can be well pick one. And so is that where that sort of line of thinking began? Yeah. I mean, it, you know, Tom Wilwright shared with me uh, more than a decade ago, he said, if you want to change your tax, you got to change your fact. 
you got to change the way that you're doing business and the way that you're investing. And I always to come to the conventional wisdom is, you know, if you make a lot of money, you got to pay a lot of tax. That's what I was taught. That's what I was, was the influence I was under, including my then CPA. Well, you had a good year, you know, what are you going to do? You, got, you can make less money or you can pay a lot of tax. You know, that was sort of the, the thought. So, you know, the idea that I could control that I could make a lot of money, but control my own tax liability never occurred to me till just over a decade ago. And, and, and when I realized that that was in my control to you know reduce my tax liability, everything changed. Yeah. And, and it's not how much you make, but it's what you keep, right? I mean, I think that's the the realization that that most business owners recognize over time. You know, after you start writing some checks that are like, man, that <laughs> let's question that. And it doesn't feel good to fork over a significant percentage of your net profit. You start to look for opportunities to change your facts. So how long did it take you to really take action and really pivot the way that you interacted with your tax strategy? I mean, was that all right, one year later, it was completely transformed? Or was it over a few few years or so? Yeah, good question. So I, I went from paying a half million dollars a year in tax one year to zero the next year. It's been close to zero ever since. And the primary mechanism was through cost segregation, depreciation and so forth? Or give us a sense of what else you were able to change your facts, so to speak. Yeah, that's that's really what it is. I had a conversation with with an investor the other day and he, you know, that investor was telling me how, you know, he's putting this whole entity structure and, and you know, using trusts and entities and offshore stuff and moving stuff around. I was like, for one, that sounds complicated and it's expensive to maintain. And unless you're immersed in in that stuff, I mean, for me, I get lost in all those details. Like you gotta structure different things different ways it's much more simple than that you you really take your income and this is what we teach this is what what I do for myself you, there's there's really three kinds of incomes there's more than that but the top three are you know ordinary income you got passive income and you got capital gains income you know of course there's portfolio income there's short term long term whatever but those are kind of the three that most people are familiar with and that you should make sure you got your head around. And then really what you're doing is you're taking an asset class that provides the depreciation to go along with that stream of income to wipe out the tax liability on that stream of income. And so for passive income, there's tons of ways you can offset the, the tax liability on passive income. For ordinary income, if you're a W-2 guy, if you're if you're a doctor, a dentist, a lawyer, a high income earner, it's much harder, but it's still possible. There are asset classes out there. And you really, when it comes down to it, you really got to figure out what does the government want you to invest in, right? And then so then you got to find that asset class to offset the tax liability on your W-2 income. And there's some out there. There's some good ones out there, especially now. And uh, so really just, you know, taking those asset classes that give you the, the depreciation that you need to offset the tax liability on that income and capital gains is another easy one. So really the hardest one is that W-2 income earner, but there's options for that. And that's what I do for myself. And that's what I teach people to do. Yeah, it's so valuable. And, and a couple of resources for the listeners who want to dive deeper into this, maybe they find themselves in that position where they've got tremendous earned income and they're getting taxed at you know a significant rate. I mean, obviously looking at Robert Kiyosaki and what he's taught over the years in terms of the cash flow quadrant and how you can make leaps from one part of the quadrant to another. And, and then of course, you mentioned Tom Wheelwright earlier, thinking about tax-free wealth and, and what he 
writes about and what he educates about. If you think about the IRS tax code, at the end of the day, it is all about incentivizing certain behavior. So understand what does Uncle Sam want to partner with individuals and businesses and investors on? And it can help you guide your behavior. And it's not like you, and I would imagine looking back, in many regards, obviously you had, you were pushed into action to make a shift in terms of how you were spending your time, how you were creating value. It's not like the tax tail totally wagged the dog, but it pushed you in tremendous forward progress and action. And so now the real asset investor has become, you know, a pretty sub substantial thing and you've scaled in a massive way. You've helped so many others access real assets and alternative investments through sort of this initial push. So talk to me a little bit about those alternative assets. And you mentioned you started kind of in the apartment space and multifamily, but you've done so many other asset classes. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, and, and to your point, you know, about finding out and using the tax code to your advantage. You know, I always sort of shock people when I tell them this because it flips on its head the thought that if you make a lot of money, you've got to pay a lot of tax. People think it's patriotic to pay a lot of tax. You know, who would build the roads, right? Well, if you want to be patriotic, do what the government wants you to do and pay zero tax. They'll pay you to do it. And so, you know, it kind of flips people on its head when, when, when I tell them flips that whole thing on its head when I tell them that really when you end up the year with a big tax bill, that's the government punishing you for not doing what they want you to do. That's a fine. That's a fine for not doing. That's, that's like your, that's like a citation. That's a fine for not doing what the government wants you to do. And when it all comes down to it, when you add value to people, when you add value to society, the government rewards you for that. When you provide housing, when you provide energy, gas, oil, anytime you, you're out there providing a lot of value through jobs, buying new equipment, stimulating the economy, all those things is what the government wants you to do. And if you do it, you do it well, they'll pay you to do it. And so different asset classes, to your question, some of the asset classes that we're involved in are three core asset classes, self-storage. We do a lot of self-storage. Uh, we do a lot of ATMs. We're one of the top four ATM operators in the country. Uh, so if you see an ATM in a convenience store out there, there's probably a one in four chance that it's ours, maybe a little less, but it's good chance they might be one of ours. And then we're building and acquiring Tommy's Express car washes. So those are sort of our core asset classes. Quick story on several of them. We just ruled up Almost a year ago, back in November, we, we ruled up 26 of our self-storage properties, sold them to a REIT out of Chicago. It was a $450 million deal. It netted our investors uh, around a 30, 31% cash on cash return annualized. That was a great deal for us. So we have a great operations team. We do a lot of self-storage. On the ATM side, another great asset class, it's almost, when you're looking at diversification, you look at those two asset classes and you think that's just like opposite. The one is super strong cash flow, 100% bonus depreciation in year one, but then there's no equity. You get out to, this, to the end of the seven-year period and the deal is over. Self-storage, our business model is we buy from a mom-and-pop operator. We add value, we force value into that deal. Normally, you know, a lot of times we're adding square footage, climate controlled square footage. We know what the REITs want. We've sold 40 plus properties to REITs, so we know what they want. We're adding climate controlled units. We're, you know, many times we're taking a 50,000 square foot facility and turning it into an 80,000 square foot facility. And then we're stabilizing and selling it to, to a REIT for some crazy cap rate. 
a lot of margin in that business, but it's a total, it's almost opposite in that because we're adding value and spending money in the property, whatever, pretty low, pretty modest cash flow, also fairly modest tax impact. But then we've seen huge equity upside and we make money in the exit. And so just to be able to provide those different sort of asset classes with with the different attributes for an investor, like if I have an investor coming to me saying, hey, you know, I sold a property and I've got a half a million dollars in gains, what would you suggest that I invest in? Okay, that's different than somebody who says, hey, I'm a, I'm a doctor and I made a half million dollars a year in income or a million dollars a year in income. What do you got that I could invest in? I mean, those are conversation starters. And then, you know, my suggestion is always, well, let's look at it from, you know, let's look at it big picture. Where are you at in your tax, on the tax side? And then what are you thinking about cash flow or equity growth? Because some people think, you know, many people think, okay, I'm going to put a hundred grand out there. I'm going to put 500 grand out there and I want that money to earn money. Right. But many times, if you can take care of, if you can reduce your tax liability and you can knock out that 37% tax, that's a 37% return on investment first year. Right. So it's those kind of things that we talk through and, and that kind of stuff gets me excited. I, I love helping people work through their tax liabilities and their, and really their ultimately their wealth strategy. That's fun, man. It is a game to your point. It's, it is a fun thing to kind of put those pieces and that puzzle together. So thinking about those three different asset classes, when you think of self-storage, ATMs, car washes, which you mentioned are kind of the, the three main asset classes that you've been focusing on recently over the past few years. And when you think about those three different components of the asset classes, you mentioned self-storage and the margin, the profitability in terms of that strategy that, that you guys have successfully employed. Now, how do ATMs and car washes play? play into that overall strategy. You mentioned sort of a tax strategy, maybe a profitability for one asset class. Maybe give us a sense of what ATMs and car washes, what role they play in that portfolio overall. Yeah. So car wash and other one is when you understand the business, you realize that, you know, the margins, I mean, it's a, it's a cash flow investment. It's a cash flow investment, number one. The other thing is institutions right now are all over it. They understand that uh, several things. They understand it's a very high, high cash flow business. They also understand that since spring of 2020, Kind of a big deal when you can take a team of, you know, a business normally that size, you know, that many transactions, that that kind of volume passing through your business. You're thinking 12, 15, 20, 50 employees. Here, we can run 200 to 300 cars per hour through our tunnel and get their cars washed. And, you know, you can do that with two employees. And so they recognize that this thing about retaining, hiring and retaining good people uh, has become a lot harder in the last two or three years. And so to be able to run those kind of margins, you know, 45% margins on EBITDA and doing that kind of volume with two people, and then also recognizing sort of like the self-storage space where this business is a proven business even during a recession or pullback. So you're looking at that thinking those three key ingredients are very popular with investors, but institutions have been waking up to the fact too, and they're seeing this and, and they want it. So there's incredible appetite in the institutional community for car washes. And we're really building this thing to sell. And our, I mean, right, right now we started out thinking that we we're going to build 30 to 40 car washes in five years. And we're now we're on pace to build 60 and four. And so it's really a race to really assemble a package, a big package of car washes, and at some point exit to a reader or an institution. And what we've seen is 
car wash packages trade when there's eight to 10 car washes in a package, we've seen those trade at somewhere around a 10X multiple. But we've seen once you get it to the size and scale where it's an institutional grade package where there's 20 plus car washes in the last four institutional size packages with 20 plus car washes and well-run tunnel washes. And we've seen those trade around the 20X multiple. And so just lately, the last couple of weeks ago, an article came out in the Wall Street Journal that really confirmed that. And they're talking about those multiples, 18 to 20X multiples on you know large institutional grade or institutional size portfolios. So we're really building this portfolio to at some point exit to a reek down the road sometime. That's very exciting. It makes me think back to my very first job was at a car wash and we did not have two people. We probably had 12 or 13 or whatever. But, you know, obviously that industry has really been transformed. It's really interesting when you go. I mean, it's it is totally a machine in, in every aspect in, in a money printing machine in many regards. So that's exciting to hear the scale that you guys have been able to achieve and the opportunities that you're uncovering in that space. And with regard to ATMs, I mean, help help me understand sort of the, the functionality that that asset plays in the overall portfolio as well. Yeah, so that's again, that's a very aggressive cash flow play. It's 24.5% cash on cash return with an IRR of around 19%. And so, you know, when you when you look at what, what it is, the business model is very simple. I mean, somebody comes and swipes their card, costs them around three bucks. Somebody on the other side of that transaction is getting the three bucks, right? We take down large portfolios of institutional grade locations, you know, convenience stores, delis, those kind of location, high foot traffic uh, locations in the right communities. We're taking down those large portfolios, could be five, 10, $20 million portfolios. And instead of getting them funded by Wall Street, we're bringing that portfolio down to their investor community and we're funding them privately. And so normally in the space, you typically have a either one of two. You have a mom and pop operator that's running around, can service up to 150-ish machines in a 50-mile radius until they've kind of you know capped out. It can be a very lucrative business, but it's also a very active business. It's not very scalable. And so on the other side of the spectrum, you have the Cardtronics of the world, you know, the big four, the big three, publicly traded companies, billion dollar revenue companies. And, you know, they're all, all of their, their maintenance people, their operators, their Brinks and Loomis bringing in the cash, filling up the machines, you know, all third party auditors. You can imagine there's cameras everywhere. And so you sort of have those two players, mom and pop and an institution. We're somewhere in the middle. We, we take down large institutional grade portfolios like over here with the big players but then we bring them back over to our investors and we and we fund them privately and then you know of course we we manage that portfolio for the investor an investor coming in will invest $104,000 for a unit of ATMs for accredited investors only that unit of ATMs placed in the portfolio and then that investor gets paid on the blended uh, performance of the entire portfolio so his ATM machines are in the portfolio, but he gets paid based on the entire portfolio. So, you know, if you're in uh, Naples, Florida, if your six ATM machines are in Naples, Florida, and you get wiped out, unfortunately, they had some rough weather down there in the last couple of days. Your cash flow doesn't stop because your ATMs are underwater. You've got a blended portfolio across the fund and, and you're getting exposure to, you know, maybe a thousand or two ATMs in the fund. So you get paid right now. We're paying out $2,142 per month. It's a seven-year contract or 84 months. It's a very aggressive cash flow play, and it's a 100% bonus depreciation in year one. That's awesome. Let's take it to a step 
sort of higher and to get a step back and kind of looking at the overall strategy. I mean, from a pace of growth, obviously looking back, I mean, you've you, you mentioned the word scalable. You've scaled significantly from a capital raising perspective. And, and obviously you speak the language of business owners and people who have gone through some challenging sort of tax experiences themselves. And obviously I'm sure you resonate with them, but I want to get to capital raising and sort of the mindset behind raising, you know, 500 million plus dollars from investors and, and offering those type of opportunities at scale. But before we get there, talk a little bit about your strategy when it comes to finding these opportunities that you're just speaking about in various different real assets. I mean, are you doing JVs? Are you doing fund to funds? Are you partnering with operators? Are you guys, you guys are sourcing the deals and vertically integrated yourself or help us understand a little bit behind the scenes there? What we do well is we like to partner with the operator. So we like to be a funding partner coming in beside them, consulting, helping them in in ways to scale the business. We find a really good operator. I'll give you an example of our self-storage operator. 40 years in the business, you know, when we first got to sort of know each other and I was asking a lot of questions, I I was asking him, like, what else do you invest in? And, you know, 40 years in business, very successful in the self-storage space. He was like, well, nothing. Self-storage is all I know. So that's a good example of, of we like to come alongside those people. Another example is the ATM space. I was a passive investor in the ATM space for about four years until I got the opportunity to partner with the guys. At that point, it was kind of a small, a small friends and family fund. Got the opportunity to get in there and, and saw the opportunity to scale. We, in 2016, I became a partner in the fund and took it from you know, small friends and family fund to now one of the top four ATM operators in the country. So we really just, we like to get behind somebody that's kind of a master in their space and then partner with them, come alongside them and help them scale the business. Yeah. Partnerships are so powerful. And one of the things that you've been able to do is obviously you've you've scaled the ability to partner with other investors through syndication. And so let's talk a little bit about raising $500 million. I mean, first of all, that is remarkable. I mean, I, I know we just we had a deal recently where we raised 16 and a half million bucks in you know, the course of two months. And that was a big lift. I mean, but to be able to multiply that in the capacity that you've been able to do is remarkable. It's it's unbelievable. So talk a little bit about sort of maybe advice that you might give your younger self when you started raising capital versus where you are now. I mean, I'm sure there's been many lessons learned, many pitfalls to avoid, many things that have, you know, significantly worked well in terms of being able to be successful in this space. So talk a little bit about that. Well, first, congratulations on on your raise. Raising $16 million in two months is no joke. And uh, I can appreciate that. So uh, congratulations. But no, it's um, just going to market. And this doesn't matter if you're a syndicator, if you're trying to raise capital, if you're building a widget, if you're whatever, going to market, looking to add value, deliver a lot of value to a lot of people. And that could be the fastest way to success. And one of the things that really helped me to kind of jumpstart and get a really good start on syndication was I was immersed in the investment world. I was doing a lot of this stuff on my own. Um, I was investing, like I shared, I was investing in ATMs for four years before I brought it to my investor group. I was investing, I owned several hundred apartment units before I ran out of my own money and then had to go find uh, a way to get the next deal done. And, then I, and that's when I got 
friends and family involved. And so really just being able to share a story and be able to say, look, this is what we're doing. This is how it works. This is how it works from the tax side. This is how it works from the equity side, the cash flow side, and really just showing them this is how this could work for you. And then going to market, looking to solve problems for them. A lot of those guys had the same problem that I had, heavy taxpayer, thinking that, you know, well, I made a lot of money last year. I got to pay a lot of tax. And then, and then I come along and kind of show them that you have options. You got more options than that. And so just being able to go out in the community and, and creating value for people, when people realize that, when your investor realizes that you're looking out for their best interest, not yours. And, you know, the, the, look, there's temptation is there when you got a deadline to meet in whatever the self-storage space. You got a big deal that you're closing on. And you got an investor that comes to you that had a big liquidity event, just sold his business for $20 million and he's looking to place capital. And, you know, you're kind of caught up over here in the ATM side where you got, you know, lots of depreciation, but you got this big deal that you're trying to get done over here on the self-storage side. You never want to take an investor's money somewhere where it's not serving his needs the best. And and so when investors realize that and they can trust you that you will, that you're looking out for them and, and their needs, that's a big deal. I completely agree. I found that myself, you know, just a simple phrase of, hey, you know what? It seems like this deal is not the best fit for you can be one of the most powerful investments into a relationship that pays massive dividends down the line. It's like, hey, you know, look, I'd love for you to invest in my deal. But based on what we talked about, this just doesn't make sense. And here's why I don't feel like this is your best option. That is just like an opportunity to earn that type of trust and that type of relationship for the long haul. And in my opinion, I would imagine that's been a huge component of your success. And I think it, it, it's almost an investment, not only in the trust and the confidence that, hey, this person is wanting to truly add value to me and they're not just looking to close me as an investor, but it's also a bit of a sort of a not a nudge towards the psychology of capital raising. There's a lot to be said about the psychology and the comfort level that people have by placing hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars with you. So maybe you could talk a little bit about your perspective and some of the psychology that you've uncovered through capital raising as well. Is there anything that you found to be interesting or any patterns that you've observed through raising capital over the years? Yeah, I mean, and and to your point, it is when you make those kind of calls, you're thinking long term, not short term. Like, could you benefit from putting on some good sales talk and getting that deal done and using that investor's capital to get that deal done? Probably. But that stuff will come back to haunt you. And, and this business is about relationships. This business is about thinking long term. And so when you can think long term, it's, it's sort of the difference between hunting and farming. You know, a hunter, the hunter's got to go out, and catch or kill something, and he's then he's got enough to eat for the day. A farmer just preps the soil, just thinks long term, just do plants the soil, whatever, and eventually that bears fruit for a long, long time, depending on what you're planting. So it's that difference between the farmer and the hunter mentality. And you just business, again, is about relationships and thinking long term. If you want to get momentum, you got to think long term. You got to do what's best for your investor. Totally agree. And there is this tendency, you know, it's like our, our mind tells us, well, you know what, you know, this will be good for them if we just kind of fit them into this one size fits all box. But if we can fight against that, because that's the lower level self that says, hey, look, if we close them, we can win in the short term and then we'll figure out a way to win in the 
long term, I think you're setting yourself up for failure. And so to that point of having the mindset of a farmer rather than a hunter reaps tremendous benefits. And there's compound interest of relationships and building and strengthening trust and playing the long game. You know, some people it's like on the other side of the fence, it's you can win a short term battle, but you lose the war. So like, let's play to win the war. You know, let's till the land and let's really water the seeds of these relationships. Hey guys, just a quick word from our sponsor. Then we'll be right back to the show. This episode of Elevate is brought to you by CF Capital, a national real estate investment firm founded by myself and my business partner, Brian Flaherty. CF Capital's mission is to provide property investment and asset management solutions to help investors like you maximize their returns by investing in high value multifamily communities. If you are looking for risk adjusted alternative investments in quality apartment communities, are seeking tax optimized cash flow with appreciation upside without all the hassles of management, you might benefit from learning more about investing alongside our team. You're invited to reach out and learn more about how you can invest with us by visiting cfcapllc.com. We're also currently offering a free ebook called The Bottom Line, 10 Ways to Increase Cash Flow in an Apartment Complex. Whether you're a new or experienced investor, we're confident you'll find massive value in this resource. So go get your free copy today at cfcapllc.com. And now please enjoy the rest of the show. Talk to me about your mindset. I want to talk a little bit about sort of the mindset that you've had because you've obviously transformed sort of your activities from a business perspective to an investor, now adding value at scale to more people. But talk to me a little bit about the mindset that you've had to really kind of step into as you've transformed. I mean, again, going back to your, I love this tagline, you can be conventional or you can be wealthy, pick one. Maybe that's maybe that's where we would like to take this in terms of just willing to question conventional wisdom. Or is there anything else that you might say that has been a mindset or a perspective that's been critical for you to adopt? Yeah, so I, I shared with the seniors class in our local high school yesterday, yesterday morning. You know, we talked about that. I told them, look, conventional wisdom doesn't work. And you should train your mind to just question everything. Uh, when you look around you and you think about conventional, I mean, you pick one, you know, just pick one. And then you ask yourself, okay, is that working? Conventional education, go to college, get the degree, come out of college with that six-figure job and drive the nice company car. Is that working? Not anymore. Conventional medicine, conventional health, conventional wealth, you know, work in this cubicle for 40 years, invest your money in a 401k, and someday you might be rich enough to retire and live the good life. How's that work? That's horrible. You know, so, so just like you go, you go down the list and you ask the question about conventional in a lot of those different categories, and you ask yourself the question, does that work? Is that, how's that working for people? And you quickly realize that conventional wisdom usually isn't the best way to approach things. So really just questioning everything, not trusting conventional media. How's that? You know, I mean, it's horrible. Just training your mind to think when you see something that even you get caught up doing conventional, doing that whole same thing that 90% of the others are doing. And then you ask yourself the question, okay, how can I do this different? Because at the end of the day, conventional is not going to get you there. It is really interesting when you go down that rabbit hole of the path of all of the different conventional thinking or conventional wisdom across media, across education, health, fitness, money, investing, career. I mean, like the list goes on and on, leading your family, relationships. I mean, like, honestly, we could probably have a three hour conversation on just this, but it is interesting. And when I think about Earl Nightingale, one of the, you know, all time greatest personal development gurus, he was talking about the strangest secret in the world. He said one of the, this is not exactly what he said, but this is the, the concept is the biggest indicator of failure is 
conformity. And ultimately, that's what you're talking about. It's like being a sheep. It's following in line. It's not questioning, why the hell are we doing this? Why the hell has this been done? It was like, well, it's been done for 200 years. It's like, okay, well, why? Is that getting us what we want? And what kind of outcome are we focused on? And if we're willing to question that and open our mind to consider a new path, well, then maybe we get to the outcomes that we want. And so when we start to question, then we can say, well, wait a minute, where do I actually want to go rather than is that the path? Because sometimes we're focused on doing rather than than gaining or the outcome. Does that resonate with you, Dave? Yeah. And and one of the things that I did when I first realized that it was in my control to eliminate or reduce my tax liability, that I could make a lot of money, make millions of dollars a year and pay no tax. That was a new thought. So when I realized that that could be done, then the next question was, okay, how can I do that? And then, you know, taking the step to really hunt down the people that were teaching it, you know, getting in front of them, getting in front of Robert Kiyosaki and asking him and his CPA questions about, okay, how is this possible? I was taught this way, but you guys are teaching something totally different. Like, how is that legal? How is that possible? And, you know, just then going to the people, like my story with the self-storage guys, you know, instead of me spending the next five or 10 years trying to figure out the self-storage space and really immersing myself in that asset class, big giant shortcut when I can come right around and team up or partner with somebody that's immersed in that space, somebody that's done it really well, and we can do business together. So really just kind of shortcutting that whole process and asking the professionals, tapping into the professionals. And so that's been a lot of fun over the years to really just, you know, finding that professional team that really has their one thing and being able to come alongside them, partner with them, take them to the next level. They take us to the next level. And it's been a lot of fun. I love it. And you know, it's just amazing. I'm just sitting here reflecting on just the absolute power of questions. The first realization is, Hey, it is possible, right? It is possible for me to reduce my tax burden. It is possible to reduce it to zero or, you know, it is possible for fill in the blank, right? Anything in my firm belief, my core belief is that really anything is possible. Obviously, you know, a lot of things we we just kind of limit ourselves to say, well, that's I have never seen that be done in my own sphere or, you know, so it, it just can't be done. So I think we've got to start there and recognize to your point, hey, anything is possible. And then number two, it's the question of how can I? And so it's just amazing to me, like these tiny, some of these things that seem insignificant, just like questions that puts us then in the world of possibilities to start finding the answers. And 80% of our success is, you know, really comes down to our own psychology and our perspective, because if we don't ask ourselves those questions, we're never going to gain the strategy and the implementation opportunity to be able to do that. And so as you've continued to stack on these type of questions, obviously you're looking on the land landscape, you're looking for opportunities, whether it's strategies from a tax perspective, whether it's acquisitions from an investment perspective, so on and so forth. Obviously, you're probably asking questions like many of us are, it's like, hey, well, what is this market cycle actually going to shake out to look like? So I'd be curious, your take, you know, give us a sense of how you're viewing this market, how you're looking at sort of the economic crosswinds. How are you reading this environment? Yeah, so it's interesting when I hear these conversations from apartment investors. They're talking about three-quarter point rate hike that kills their deal. You know, and to me, those numbers are too tight. There's not even there's not even a margin there for me. When when we went through the spring summer of 2020 with our ATM portfolio, our transaction volume for two or three months at the very lowest point, our transaction volume dropped eleven percent. And so that 11% is a lot. But fortunately, we had a 28% 
margin buffer built in to protect our investors. And so you're looking at a 28% margin buffer. So I, I kind of like sort of just chuckle a little bit when I hear an apartment investor, you know, their deal gets killed because of a half point or a three quarter point rate hike. When you look at the ATM business, you're, I mean, uh, the car wash business, you're looking at a business model, a well-run tunnel car wash that's running on a 45% margin on EBITDA. I mean, there's, you know, and when you look at what happened in 2008 to 2010, at the worst point during that era, car washes volume across the board dropped around 5%. Just a lot of margin there. So when I look at, you know, when you ask me the question about what am I seeing out there, investors beware, especially if you're operating under those uh, sort of asset classes where you've got a really skinny margin that you're dealing with and don't have much protection. I think it's critical to understand margin and to understand resiliency and to stress test your deals. I mean, you know, the past 14 years have been a run up in most all asset classes. And so the people look back and, you know, the conventional wisdom in the investment industry comes to be, well, you know, things always continue to grow. I mean, rent growth and, you know, velocity and all of these different things, it just grows. You know, that's just the world that we live in. And man, we forget very, very quickly about these cycles. And guess what? What goes up must come down. So are there any tips that you might have to investors in being more sort of thoughtful in how they're investing with margin in their deals? Or is there anything in particular you would point to? Yeah, I mean, it's hard today to find an asset that is providing good, steady cash flow. And to buy that asset at a fair price, it's it's hard. There's asset prices have climbed, as you mentioned, a lot. So, you know, being able to go in there and force value into something, figuring out a need in the marketplace and, and forcing the value. You know, one of the things that we're doing in the car wash space is we're taking a very good location and we're building a car wash on it. So we're we're creating the value. We're forcing the value into that uh, location by building a very profitable business on top of that. It's different than when you go out and try to buy something that's already providing steady, stable, solid income. You know, there's a lot more competition for that type of a deal. So just realizing where the margin is and you know, asking yourself the question now, can I go out and force value into something, into a deal? I gave you the example of, you know, taking a self-storage facility that's in an underserved area, taking a mom and pop operated facility and then adding the square footage and getting it up to the size and scale that's now attractive to a REIT. There's a lot of margin there. If you go out and try to buy a 75,000 square foot facility that's got strong NOI, great cash flow, all that, I mean, his cap rates are crazy low. And so, you know, just being aware and being able to recognize, okay, where is an area that I can force value? Because that's where you're going to make margin in today's market. Where are you seeing the biggest opportunities in this next recession? I mean, is there any part of the marketplace where you see an opportunity to add more value than others or anything else that you're paying attention to closest? Either having cash to be able to take advantage of opportunities that come along because of the market cycle. And those opportunities could be a result of a lot of things. Could be a result of over leverage, could be a result of bad management. Could be, I mean it could be could be a lot of things. But then being able to have the either the cash 
or the ability to raise the cash to take advantage of those opportunities when they come along, I would say that that would be a big one over the next two years. Could not agree more. And uh, man, Dave, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, it's really fun to kind of dive into your mind and the way that you're looking at things and the way that you've just questioned all of these things across society that have just been set in stone as this is just the way it's done. You know, I, you always think about, you know, old time corporations were like, well, why are we doing this? Well, this just this is how we do it. This is how it's always been done. This is how it's going to continue to be done. But I just appreciate the way that you like the foundation of who you are is you're asking that type of question. It's like, well, why are we doing it this way? And can it be done in a totally different way? And also the other side is how can I add value to other people? How can I add value at scale to other people through your investor community? And then also it's like, how can we force appreciation? How can we add value to these investments into the community that we're investing in so that we can reap sort of margin and give ourselves more resiliency? So those are some of the summarizing comments that I would like to add. But Dave, I'd like to transition into the rapid fire section of the podcast. It's called the rare air questionnaire. It's all about being uncommon. I mean, at the end of the day, this conversation has been so uncommon in so many ways. So I'd love to ask you just a few questions. If you had to point to two or three of the most impactful books that you've read over the past few years, what would those be and why? Rich Dad, Poor Dad is one. Uh, the Compound Effect by Darren Hardy is another one. There's another one that I read just recently, the Who Not How was a big one for me. I would say probably those three. Man, I love all three of those books. We'll put links in the show notes as to where the listeners can find those themselves. Of course, starting with a classic. I mean, that was that was one that almost put me in this world of questioning everything was Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And then, of course, I mean, what we're talking about, we're talking about making investments in investors and other partners and relationships. That, to me, the compound effect is one component of that. And of course, there's so many different efforts that we can put forth that compounds that give us exponential growth opportunities. And of course, man, who not how? I mean, that, that was a game changer for me as well. I, I mean, I grew up middle class and our our mindset that we were taught the conventional wisdom in that sort of world. If it is to be, it's up to me. And yes, there's value in our efforts and things like that. But ultimately, there are other people who can help us achieve certain outcomes and many more outcomes and achieve greater outcomes. So thank you for those reminders, man. I love that. And aside from what we've already talked about today, Dave, what's the biggest way that you elevate your life on a daily basis? If you can put emphasis on health, and wellness, it comes down to the question, okay, what is wealth? If you're a billionaire and you're not feeling well and you're just unhealthy and, uh, or if you're a billionaire and you're not, your relationships are in shambles and you don't have friends, are you rich? Not really. I mean, you've got money, but you know, so, so when I look at, you know, success and wealth, I think about those things. I, I think about it, you know, when, when we talk many times, when we think about success and wealth, our mind naturally goes to how much money is in our bank account. But when you talk about real success and real wealth, it's much deeper than that. In fact, money might be top three or top four in that list. Being able to build relationships, being able to take care of your body, you only get one. If you don't feel good, nothing else matters, right? So true, and man. So taking care of your, your body, your spiritual health, and then, you know, making sure you're sound financially and making good, doing good deals and, and uh, lifting people around you through doing that. Man, I love that you're setting that type of example because I think a lot of times investors, you know, get tunnel vision and it's like, hey, you know, it's cash on cash. It's internal rate of return. It's getting that tax bill to zero. It's all of these things. It's net worth. It's all these, you know, cash flow, blah, 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 on and on and on. But at the end of the day, success without fulfillment is the ultimate failure. 
And it comes down to health physically, it comes down to health in your relationships with your family, all of those things. And so I just appreciate the fact that you're giving us a, an example to course correct. If for some reason we're out of alignment in certain areas of our life, look, let's look back and say, man, it's not just about money. It's about creating a life. It's about investing in other people. It's about investing in your fulfillment. And I just, I love that. So Dave, talk to me about the biggest way you elevate others around you. I would say from a financial perspective, we've helped people save probably hundreds of millions of dollars in tax. And, you know, it's always fun when you get the call, you know, you're explaining the investment and how the depreciation works and how it will affect them and all that. And they, they sort of, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. That sounds good, whatever. But then when they, you get the call, like on April the 20th, or, you know, sometime soon after they get their, you know, they have their tax work done and they have, you know, sit down with their CPA and they're like, wow, this stuff really works. Like, you know, just like, you said, I'm like yeah, yeah, I know. So really, you know, through education, I would say through education and, and building long-term wealth, I think uh, we've delivered a lot, a lot of value over the, the last decade. Dave, I just want to acknowledge you, man. This has been super fun conversation. I've learned a lot and I just want to acknowledge you, man, for continuing to add value at scale to so many people and giving people the opportunity to question conventional wisdom in all aspects of their life. Dave Zook, any parting thoughts or words of wisdom that you'd like to share with Elevate Nation today? No, go uh, question conventional wisdom, partner with great people. Life is just a whole lot more fun when you do business with really cool people. And uh, so just go out and do that well. Go make an impact, impact your community, your family, people around you. Awesome, man. Great stuff. Dave, until next time, my friend, thanks again for being on the show. All right. Thank you, Todd. Thanks for having me. You bet. Elevate Nation, Dave Zook bringing the heat today, bringing so much value. I just love when we get to speak with people as successful as Dave Zook and you realize how nice they are, how kind they are, how willing they are to share their perspective and, you know, to help us kind of dive in to identify those clues. And I can tell you, there's a lot of clues from this conversation today. And you want to talk about somebody who is bold, who is continuing to push the limits, who's continuing to question conventional wisdom. I can tell you that conventional wisdom in the real state spaces, not one of which, you know, we can raise $500 million. That That is uh, not conventional wisdom in the space. So there is tremendous upside to questioning conventional wisdom. Again, you can be conventional or be wealthy. Pick one. That is such a massive takeaway from this episode, but there's so many more. I want to encourage you to re-listen to the show because when we listen twice, we learn twice as much. When we listen three times, we learn three times as much or more, by the way. It's amazing what our brain sort of takes out of the conversation when we're not careful. When we re-listen, repetition is a mother of all skill. If we want to gain the skill and the expertise and the willingness to open ourselves to new opportunities, I just want to encourage you to do that. I also want to encourage you to share this episode with a friend and have a discussion. I want you to identify your top three key takeaways from this episode. There's probably 27 takeaways, to be honest with you, and maybe even more. But I just want you, I want to encourage you to identify that your top three. What are those three items? that really moved you, moved the way that you saw things, the way that you want to communicate with your partners, the way that you're interacting with this market cycle. What are those takeaways that you want to apply immediately? Because ultimately, at the end of the day, application is where the real power is. Knowledge is not power. It is the opportunity to take action on insights, which then creates power. So ultimately, I want to encourage you to take massive action on what you learned today. And until next time, Elevate Nation, thank you so much for tuning in, and we will see you next time. Thank you for listening to Elevate. 
If you enjoy this episode, be sure to rate, review, subscribe, and pay it forward by sharing with a friend. Most importantly, take this opportunity to elevate your results by taking immediate action on what you learned. For more, visit elevatepod.com.